produces what's called a speedball, a mixture of an opiate and a stimulant. At the core of Derek Chauvin's defense, the claim that George Floyd was taking so-called speedballs and died of a drug overdose, not a knee on his neck. Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am your host, longtime injection drug user and speedballer Ben Boyce. And today's episode is about the mysterious, romanticized process of mixing heavy opioids, like heroin or Oxycontin, with heavy stimulants, like cocaine or methamphetamine, to produce a single injectable liquid which contains both drugs, a speedball. Speedballs were blamed in the death of River Phoenix, John Belushi, Chris Farley, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Pretender's bass guitarist Pete Farden, Chris Kelly from the 90s hip-hop band Criss Cross, Grateful Dead vocalist Brett Midland, and some people even tried to blame George Floyd's death on speedballs. Combining drugs is often a bad idea, and combining street drugs is an awful idea. In cases like these, the unpredictable potency of drugs has a lot to do with the overdoses that do occur. But even if cocaine and heroin were street legal and regulated, using them together, especially intravenously or in high doses, still isn't a very good idea. They both have a ton of properties that make them complement one another, and I'll get to those in just a minute, but they also both have properties that can react poorly with one another. In fact, the thing that makes them work so well together is, ironically, the thing that also makes them most dangerous. That's a great place for me to start. I don't suggest anyone start shooting up speedballs. I don't suggest anything medically at all. That's not what this podcast is about. I will start off by reminding anyone who's using street drugs to always test them before you use them, to make sure you're not using something you didn't pay for, something you don't want to use. Fentanyls are making their ways into all sorts of our street drugs nowadays. It isn't very often that I'm this explicit about my this-is-not-medical-advice disclaimer, but since this is an episode which might very well sound pro-speedball by the time I'm done, especially if taken out of context, I want to be clear, that's not the point. My point is to explain why people are drawn to these drugs together, not to tell you to use them, but to explain that users aren't freaks or weirdos. We're humans who are acting on human needs and desires. Despite their relative unpopularity in the drug community, speedballs are incredibly effective when it comes to tapping into two of our oldest universal traits as human beings. Our desire to hunt and our desire to feast. Our desire to learn and then to know or to even teach. Our desire to build and our desire to use or live in the products that we've built. Our desire to cook and our desire to pig out the thirst for intense new experiences, and the desire to feel content and satiated, to feel like we've checked something off of our proverbial bucket list. These competing drives complement one another, and it turns out that cocaine and heroin, respectively, imitate the same biological experiences of hunting and feasting, of learning and knowing, of building and enjoying. Before I get into all that, I mentioned that speedballs aren't that common. That's for two reasons. One, even when you shoot up cocaine or methamphetamine with an opioid in the same needle, you don't feel the effects of the drugs hit you at the same time. The stimulant always kicks in first, and then 10 to 30 seconds later, the opioid will kick in. 
So if you really wanted to experience the magic of what a speedball is alleged to be, you'd have to be pretty clever, not to mention handy with two needles and capable of shooting them up one after the other. It just isn't worth it for most drug users. The second reason for the unpopularity of speedballs is that these drugs often can't be prepared in the same containers. Heroin usually has to be mixed with water and heated to a boil before it'll fully dissolve. Sometimes other opioids, or black tar heroin, have to be mixed with an acidic cutting agent and heated to fully dissolve. But cocaine and methamphetamine normally dissolve in water without heat. And if you do heat them, you risk either beginning the process of cooking the cocaine into crack, or worse, cooking the cutting agents into something like paste or bread. So even if we want to do a speedball, and thanks to the romance of Hollywood fiction, many of us do, we usually only mess up a shot or two before we stop risking it and just shoot them up in different needles at different times. That's the first takeaway from this episode. Speedballing, this big scary monster we've all heard about from Hollywood fiction, it's mostly a ghost. It's an impossible concoction that wouldn't work the way we would want it to, even if we did manage to get two drugs into one needle, which we often can't. The speedball is largely a boogeyman. Now, it doesn't mean that users don't frequently use heavy doses of opioids and stimulants together at the same time. There's a really good reason for that, and that's what the rest of this episode is about. If you've used opioids and heavy stimulants in the past, you probably won't have any trouble accepting the ideas I'm going to put forward here. I'll likely just be putting names to phenomena you know all too well, but maybe you didn't realize there was a way to talk about it, or maybe you thought you were the only one who really felt this way. These aren't my ideas, by the way. They're well-researched and documented. You can find links to much of the work I'll discuss today in the episode description. But if you haven't used one or both of these drugs, you might not quite understand what the feelings I'm talking about are, or how they can possibly relate to the other feelings I'm going to compare them to. So if that's the case, I invite you to ask the people in your life who have used these drugs what they think, if these concepts align with their experiences with the drugs discussed. Because, number one, we should be having these conversations more often anyway. And number two, we have to find ways to update how we talk about drugs. And this is a big one. Like I said, cocaine and methamphetamine are drugs that activate the same neural circuits as we also find activated in moments of what researcher Donald Klein has called the thrill of the hunt. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's what would be going on upstairs if you were on a horse, racing through the forest, chasing down some sort of game that you were planning to eat. Opioids, and to some degree other so-called downers, like benzodiazepines and barbiturates, they activate what Donald Klein calls the thrill of the feast. And you can relate this feeling to exactly what it sounds like too. What it would feel like to have already caught your prey, and to be cooking it up, preparing to feast. Another way to think about these two feelings is the difference between liking something and wanting something. The difference between learning something and knowing something. And as complicated as this might sound, it really isn't. We all have various types of what we might think of as happiness or enjoyment. Sometimes that enjoyment is the dopamine-fueled thrill of the hunt, which is why dopamine plays such an important role in our learning. It basically tags memories as more important than others. 
But dopamine enjoyment isn't the only sort of pleasure or joy that we feel as humans. We also experience something more akin to satisfaction. A full belly, a completed job, a learned subject, a finished assignment. This is Klein's thrill of the feast. This sort of pleasure is not dopamine-fueled. And sometimes our dopamine levels actually decrease when we feel this way. But our culture-wide flattening of the dopamine conversation has left many of us convinced that dopamine is synonymous with happiness. That wouldn't be such a big deal if it didn't prop up so many other misunderstandings of drugs and those who use them. Holding the belief that feeling good is the same thing as having a high dopamine level, along with the faulty idea that taking a drug simply bumps up your dopamine, these two cultural lies have allowed people to be angry at drug users and to see them as selfish and immoral, as stealing more than their fair share of daily feel-good while you're forced to get by with the normal ration. But that's not how drugs work. That's not how the brain works. It's nowhere near that simple. Dopamine does a lot in the brain and in the body, but for the purpose of this podcast, remember, I'm a doctor of communication, not a neurologist, the most important thing to remember is that dopamine aids in learning. It gets us pumped up, engaged, ready to blast off and get the job done. The job could be hitting the club, or it could be reading a book, or watching a movie, or having sex. But if you're excited about it, if you want to do it, Chances are, you're experiencing a number of neurotransmitters spiking, including dopamine. It's a really good thing that we have these systems, by the way. Our entire life is built upon the foundation of cognition. Humans quickly identify things in our environment as safe or dangerous, as boring or exciting, as novel or as familiar. Everything is either something that still needs to be done or something that's already been done. Everything is either something that needs to be discovered and studied, or something that's already well known and verified as safe. In this yin-yang back and forth, you've noticed it a few times already in this episode, that's how our bodies navigate the world. Cognition is basically the result of a dialectical tension. When something is dangerous or unknown or exciting, we put up our guard and juice up our dopamine to mark the memory as important. When something's safe and cozy, we crank it down to relax. Both can feel really good, but dopamine only spikes during one of these states. Now from here we can swerve back into Klein's ideas about the thrill of the hunt, about wanting something, and about the thrill of the feast, liking something. This analogy is a good one, and it also helps us understand why addictions to different substances play out in such different ways and why people under the influence of different drugs act so predictably different. A three-hour cocaine binge produces reliable effects that look nothing like those from a three-hour heroin binge or a three-hour alcohol binge. You may have heard someone say at some point in your life, I have an addictive personality. While we're in the myth-busting portion of the episode, it's worth pointing out that that's not really a thing. What you might be able to get away with saying honestly is something more like, I have a personality that draws me to drugs of the hunt, or to drugs of the feast, or to psychedelics, or to all or none of these drugs. The idea of an addictive personality is yet another way to flatten a conversation about a group, drug users, who are dying in mass because of the way that we're treated and talked about by society. The CDC updated its preliminary overdose numbers again yesterday, 
and they're now up to 95,000 deaths being blamed on overdose in a single year between February 2020 and February 2021. Our cultural ignorance is a big part of our problem. The way we talk about drugs leads to these deaths. Back to addictive personalities for a second. If you know somebody who is driven to work 16-hour days, who's always getting involved in projects that strike you as ambitious or even delusional, they have a personality that is susceptible to drugs of the hunt because they spend a large part of their lives immersed in the affect of the hunt. The feeling, the mood, the state of mind that goes with actively pursuing an elusive goal. Drugs don't work on parts of the brain that otherwise don't exist. They don't activate circuits that otherwise lie dormant. Drugs work on networks and processes that happen all the time. That's the only reason that they work at all. On the other side of the driven individual, who we might rightly describe as susceptible to addiction or overuse of drugs of the hunt, we could also think of the personality type that might be drawn to drugs of the feast. The feast is the part of the day when the work is done, the stress is over, the problems are solved, at least until tomorrow. The kids are tucked into bed, the dogs are fed, the dishes are cleaned and put up. It's that ah moment that comes far too seldom in most lives. The hypothetical super worker who's always trying to get the next raise has, as their anti-hero, the head down, punch the clock, I can't wait to get home and watch reruns of Star Trek The Next Generation worker. This worker couldn't care less about raises or promotions. The thrill of the hunt really isn't a draw to them. They're unlikely to be drawn to drugs of the hunt because the hunt isn't all that inviting to them. But the thrill of the feast, that portion of the day where the work is finished and everything's going to be okay, well most of us want that. If you're prone to turning inward, anxious or depressed, if you're easily overwhelmed or uncomfortable in social situations, that means that you're not excited by things that might be thought of as hunting for satisfaction in a social or financial environment. We're talking about the sort of person who might be prone to skip the social gathering, the weekend parties, the holiday barbecue, the gym, the Sunday sermon, and the potluck afterwards. Someone who might instead find something else to provide that same fulfillment. This person might opt for a drug of the feast, a drug of satisfaction, like an opioid. And they might not even be interested in a drug of the hunt. And here, we're running right into another stereotype about addicted people that falls apart the second we look closely. This is what David Poses talked about a few weeks ago, when the rehab he was attending took his mouthwash and his hand sanitizer and told him they knew he would drink it if they didn't. Now that might be true for some addicted people, but all drugs work differently in all people, and all addictions are different. Most of us know full well which drugs treat us the right way, which drugs make us feel good about life and help us perform as our best selves. And most of us learn relatively early in life which drugs don't agree with us, which we should avoid outright, and which we can use responsibly. Addiction is not synonymous with a lack of self-control, and it certainly doesn't mean we consume any intoxicating substance within arm's reach. That stigma is just one of the many that allow people to treat us as untrustworthy monsters, to dehumanize us and lock us up. The story doesn't end there. Let's say that you're the type of person who's on the edge of work happy, but you're not totally preoccupied with getting rich, changing careers, making a name for yourself. You plan to work 25 years or so and then retire, keeping it simple. Now, if you go out on the weekend and take some cocaine, you might find yourself suddenly driven to do something, 
to build something in your garage, to write a few dozen pages of your long put-off screenplay, or to maybe just blab 100 miles an hour to your friend about things that are none of their business. These activities by themselves all lead directly to the very human, very pleasant feeling of satisfaction, the thrill of the feast. As a human, one of the many ways to get that feeling of satisfaction is from social connection. And having a conversation with a friend, even a blabby one fueled by cocaine, that takes us to that place. It provides a very human, very pleasant feeling. And so, in many people, drugs of the hunt also work to provide a bit of the satisfaction of the feast, although not directly. They just make us do things that work to make us feel that satisfaction to feel like we've accomplished something. But on their own, these activities take a lot of effort and sometimes a lot of luck. Who's to say you don't write a script, polish it up, and spend a million hours making copies and sending them to producers only to strike out and get no callbacks? That's no fun, right? It would almost be like the cycle was never completed. I mean, you definitely hunted, but you never got your feast. In the same way, good conversations are not all that common. And many of us know better than to just dive into the deep stuff with someone we don't trust and risk having the opposite experience or feeling disconnected, unsatisfied. Again, it would feel a lot like completing a hunt without the payoff, no feast. Cocaine sort of nudges us into these projects, lowering our inhibitions and making the process feel much more enjoyable than it otherwise would. It makes it easier to not sweat the issues down the road, because if you enjoy the process of writing the screenplay, or talking to your friend, or building that project in your garage, well then the stakes are lower. Because even if you wind up with a complete disaster of a screenplay, project, or a conversation, it was still fun. The cocaine or methamphetamine takes care of that. So when the screenplay is finished, sure, I feel accomplished, the thrill of the feast. But if and when it's successful, purchased, turned into a film, well, then I feel another, more intense thrill of the feast. Satisfaction, contentment, closure. And all of this is incredibly human. It's what we are. It's what drives us. It's how we understand the world. When we take drugs of the hunt, drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine, we simply turn the dial all the way up. And we don't even have to do the work we normally do to achieve that state of mind. The story is the same for those who enjoy drugs of the feast, but don't enjoy drugs of the hunt. If you don't want to go to all those things that people can do to plug those holes, social gatherings, conferences, vacations, visits, projects in our garage, or writing screenplays, well then you might just find yourself enjoying a drug of the feast and eliciting the same states of mind. States of mind which we often can't seem to muster the energy to seek out in other ways. Or when we do, it doesn't work right. Drugs of the hunt and drugs of the feast are just ways for humans to adjust our emotional and mental states without having to do much work. Just that small bit of information that I've shared so far provides a different way of thinking about these drugs. From here, we can look at the romantic speedball in an entirely new light. Sure, some people are just in it for the rush, and they don't really care about chilling out later. They just want drugs of the hunt. And others of us are in it just to chill to put on our earbuds or play video games, to just hang out and be content. We're in it for just the thrill of the feast. But then there's people like me, people who are wired up to some degree both ways. I lean towards drugs of the feast, but I also enjoy drugs of the hunt from time to time. 
I love fast cars and ATVs, complicated projects and pie-in-the-sky dreams. I can lose myself for hours or sometimes even days on something like a podcast episode or a book. In other words, I really dig the thrill of the hunt, and drugs like cocaine are tempting because they have the same effect without having to put in the same amount of effort. And they do it much faster, much better, and much more reliably. And likewise, I dig the satisfaction of just chilling out and feeling okay. And since I have Asperger's, that's often a difficult thing to do. Asperger's in the autism spectrum generally are best thought of as an overwiring, as an inability to shut off many connections between areas of the brain. But drugs of the feast not only work every time, but they also work so much better and faster than natural remedies that they can become addictive if we find ourselves in a bad place, or if the other things in our life stop working. And here we are again, at the edge of tough love, dealing with a friend or a family member who's been found out as a user, probably because something bad happened, a DUI, an accident, a job lost. And now we have to decide, should we push them out of our lives? Should we withdraw our source of social contentment and connection, our source of the thrill of the hunt? Should we make it more difficult for them to get that from us? Maybe we should issue an ultimatum, or make it clear that we're dissatisfied with their behavior instead of listening, accepting, being willing to ask what's going on and how we can best support our friend. And with all this being the norm, we still have the gall to wonder why it sometimes becomes more tempting for the people we tough love to go elsewhere for their contentment and fulfillment, why they turn towards the drugs more, not less when we kick them out. We fire someone from their job, from their source of the thrill of the hunt, and then we act surprised when they struggle with addictions to alcohol, methamphetamine, or cocaine. We take away someone's social network and then wonder why they struggle with addictions to opioids or benzodiazepines. And when we take away both, we can press people towards behaviors that they might not otherwise even be interested in. We could turn casual users into addicted people. To sum up, people don't use speedballs that often because it's hard to prepare them and they don't kick in at the same time even when we do manage to get them into the same needle. But more importantly, people who do use these drugs together are not out of our minds. People using speedballs are often struggling to get their very human needs met in other ways and they're having no success. That's where we, as friends, can help by bringing them close, by accepting them wherever they're at. We can provide alternative sources for the thrill of the hunt and the thrill of the feast. And just understanding what's going on with drug use can help a lot. A big part of friendship is trust. And that's hard to build if you don't understand why someone's using drugs. So hopefully this episode's helped a little bit. There are links in the episode description to much of what I discussed today. And if this episode interests you, you'll love the book, Dr. Junkie, which will be out sometime in early 2022. Test your drugs, avoid mixing street drugs, and most importantly, love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.